So today we're going to continue on in the book of 1 Peter. We've got just a few more weeks left, coming down to the end of this book that we've been working through all summer. And we've been in this series called On the Ground, looking at what does it look like and how do we live out our faith in this crazy world that we find ourselves in, um, in a way that actually aligns itself with the Bible and with Jesus and with the mission that we've been given uh, by our God. And so we want to do that again today in chapter 4, is we're going to be picking up, chapter 4, verse 12. Um, and this whole book, Peter's kind of been tracing this theme through the entire book of suffering. And how do we deal with suffering as believers in the world? And so today he's going to kind of double down on that again. And so I just called this one the humble sufferer part two, because we already dealt with this once earlier in the book. But here he's nailing it again to kind of give us some more handles uh, of, as to how we're supposed to live this out and what this is supposed to look like. So um, last Sunday when I was preaching, I talked a little bit about the Olympics, and I'm sure you've seen the Olympics have been on the last couple of weeks, and um, it's been a popular thing at our house. Like almost every night, our girls have been watching the Olympics, and they just they love seeing these top athletes, you know, compete uh, at these events and, and represent their countries and all those kind of things. They've just kind of been enthralled with all of that. But as we were watching this last week, it, it kind of struck me, like, I think sometimes we just take for granted how much work and how much training and how much they have to do to get there. Right? Like, I did a little research this week, just kind of like wondering, like, what does that take to really make it to the Olympics in any given sport or, or you know, um, event or whatever? So the average Olympian will train anywhere from six to eight years in hopes to get into maybe even just one event that might last like two or three minutes, right? Six to eight years training every single day, sometimes multiple times per day in order to get themselves ready for this level of competition. I found one training regiment from a, triath tri a triathlon athlete, and it looks like this. It says at 5.30 a.m., they get up and they swim 5,200 meters. Now, I don't know how much that is exactly, because I'm an American and I deal with feet, but like, seems like a lot. Like 5,200, that's a big number of meters, right? Um, and so I did a little research, and it's, they do a, a number of various exercises and it's about 80 minutes worth of swimming, right? Not like 80, min 80 minutes on the, the floaty thing in the pool, right? Like 80 minutes of actual swimming, training, 52, that's 5.30 a.m. to start with. Then they take a little break, I don't know, get some breakfast or sleep a lot, I don't know. And then 9 a.m. come back and run seven miles. Now I, I can, that's more like, I get miles. Miles makes sense to me, all right? So seven miles, that's a lot of running. Um, and then they come back at 3 p.m. and they do the bike for intervals, interval training of 90 minutes in one day for six to eight years, right? That's, that's intense. That's all, like I run one mile and I'm like, man, I killed it today. Like that was good work right there. They, they're training like this every day. You think about the toil that that would take on your body, right? Like the, the pain and the suffering that you would have to endure to get yourself through all of that to get to that level of competition. But if they're going to get there, if they're going to get it to the Olympics, if they're going to have any chance of even competing or winning, this is what it takes. This level of dedication, this level of commitment, this level of suffering in order to make it. What Peter's going to tell us again in this chapter of, of, of his letter is like, listen, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to actually get to the end, if you're actually going to fulfill the mission and reach the goal, it's going to take some suffering to get there. And we, just, we need to 
meditate on that. We need to swallow that down a little bit because I don't think that the majority of us, that's the normal way we think about our Christian life. We don't expect it to be suffering. We know it comes sometimes. We kind of have to deal with it, and it's like this outline thing. But Peter's like, no, no, no. This is part of the deal. Like, this is what you're going to be walking through and living through if you're going to follow Christ. It's required. So the main thought I put together for this sermon this morning was this. Suffering is my only path to a secure and sanctified faith. Like, if I'm going to truly walk with Christ and I'm going to be sanctified in his image, suffering is the only way I'm going to get there. And so we need to wrestle that down and see what that means for each of us. So look at me with verse 12. And let's pick it up there. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of God, glory and of God rests upon you. First point this morning is simply this. When suffering comes, don't be surprised, but rejoice that your faith is secure. When suffering comes, don't be surprised, but rejoice knowing that your salvation, your faith is secure. So he starts off in verse 12. He says, beloved. So we, that's, he's telling us here, who, who's he talking to, right? The beloved is the church. It's Christians. It's fellow believers, right? That's who he's talking to here, the church family, And he tells them, he says, beloved, do not be surprised, right? Don't be caught off guard. Don't be shocked. Don't be unaware of the reality that following Christ means suffering. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to like give us a better perspective as of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials. Now, he uses that specific phrase there on purpose because he's not talking about just suffering in general. He's talking about a very specific type of suffering here. He's referring back to this imagery that's used throughout the Old Testament that talks about the refiner's fire. Maybe you've heard of this before. Maybe you've seen this or in another sermon somewhere, but he actually referenced it earlier in 1 Peter in chapter 1, and I kind of touched on it briefly back then, but I want to kind of dig on it a little bit more today and give us some more context here, okay? So back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, this is one of the verses in the Old Testament that talks about this refining fire image. It says that he, God, or Jesus more specifically, will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So it's the image of like God or Christ like sitting down at, or maybe not even saying, but coming to the, 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 the blacksmith's or the silversmith's fire and taking the, the, the raw materials and putting them in this pot and heating them up and to, they get to like liquid form so that he can purify them and remove the impurities. But the, the ore, the stuff he's putting in there isn't rock, it's us. <laughs> he's putting us in the fiery trials of suffering and life to refine us. One theologian gave this description I thought was super helpful. Kenneth West, he says... The picture here is of an ancient goldsmith who puts his crude gold ore in a crucible, subjects it to intense heat, and thus liquefies the mass. The impurities rise to the surface and are skimmed off. When the metal worker is able to see the reflection of his face clearly mirrored in the surface of the liquid, 
He takes it off the fire, for he knows that the contents are pure gold. He goes on, so it is with God and his child. He puts us in the crucible of Christian suffering in which, in which the process, the sin, is gradually put out of our lives. Our faith is purified from the slag of unbelief that somehow mingles with it so often. And the result is the reflection of the face of Jesus Christ and the character of the Christian. This above all, God the Father desires to see. Christ's likeness is God's ideal for his child. Christian suffering is one of the most potent means to that end. God uses suffering, fiery trials in our lives for a purpose. Peter's saying, telling, like, listen, this is not an accident. He, this is, don't be surprised, but this is on purpose. God does this to test your faith, to refine your faith to remove the impurities of sin and, and all this stuff and to change us into the character of Christ. And the fact that he's doing that in your life is proof that you truly are saved. Don't think that the, that the suffering is, means that you're not or that somehow God's punishing you for something. No, he's refining you. He's testing you. He's bringing you to a new level of faith in Jesus Christ through the fiery trials. Listen, God is a consuming fire. For those who are saved in Jesus Christ, we are protected and that fire simply refines us. For the person who's not a believer in Jesus Christ, that fire will one day consume them. But it's the same fire. And so if he's using suffering in your life, to refine and to test and to grow your faith, that's just proof that you're truly saved, that you belong to Jesus. That's a good thing. Malachi 3.5 goes on. It says this, then, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. He's saying right here, like, listen, it's going to be one or the other. You're either going to be refined by the fire or you're going to be judged by the fire of God. And if the trials are refining you, if they're making your faith more precious and, and pure and it's putting the character of Christ in you, then that's just proof that you really belong to Jesus. And so he says, don't count this as strange. Don't think it abnormal when these fiery trials come upon you. This is how God works. This is his way, whether we like it or not. This is how God uses suffering and trials to refine us, and it is the rule rather than the exception in the Christian life. He goes on. He says, because this, he says, don't be, don't be surprised, don't count it strange. He says, but rejoice when you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, that's always hard to read verses like that because you're like, nobody rejoices in suffering, right? Like, nobody's like, yes, I lost my job. Woo! Right? Like, like you just don't get that, right? Like, I got, I got sick. Yay, right? Like, no, nobody, Jesus didn't even do that. 
When Jesus was going to the cross, he wasn't like, yeah, the cross. Like, he wasn't rejoicing in the actual physical suffering. Peter's not saying that. The suffering still is suffering. It's not fun. It's not good. Now, don't we, we don't rejoice in it. We rejoice in what it produces. Right? We rejoice because it proves that we truly are his disciples. Let me give you some more verses. In case, in case you're still skeptical of the whole like, Christian suffering thing, let me kind of, here's Jesus talking. Okay, is Jesus good? We go with, with Jesus talking, right? Matthew 16, 24, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He didn't mean wear cross earrings or necklaces or put it on your shirt. That's not the taking up the cross he's talking about. The cross is the actual wooden structure that he hung from and died on. It was a symbol of great suffering in this day and age. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, guess what? You're going to follow me through some suffering. That's the way it works. John 15, 20 He said this, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Listen, Jesus did not have a life free of suffering. Like one easy read of the Gospels, and that's very, very clear. And so if the man that we claim to love and cherish and follow and worship had suffering, guess what's on the agenda for us? But we can rejoice in the suffering because it proves that we truly are disciples of Christ and because it gives us a hope for the future. Look what Peter says next. He says, if you rejoice in your suffering, then you can also rejoice when his glory is revealed. Suffering for Christ now in this life is preparing us to also be able to rejoice when Christ returns to take all of the faithful believers back with him. It's this hope that we have that in the future Christ is coming and we're going to get to experience the true rejoicing for all that we have lived through and all that we've done on his behalf. Our current suffering is purifying us. It's preparing us for that day that we might be worthy, faithful, to stand in the presence of our Savior. We suffer now in order to live our best life in eternity. This isn't the best life. Stop believing the lies that the commercials and the movies and the media and your neighbors... and that this is, the, this is the best thing you can do right now. Like, get all you can, buy all the stuff, live all the life, take all the trips, do all. This is not the best life. The best life is still coming. And so right now we're preparing for that by walking faithfully with Christ, which sometimes means some suffering. He goes on. He says, if you're insulted by others for your faith, if you're insulted, that you're actually blessed because you have the Spirit of God in you. You understand this? Like, people aren't going to attack you or insult you for your faith unless they're able to see your faith. 
right? If you're, if you're living your faith out, if they're seeing it come out in your character and out in your life and out in your decisions and your relationships, that's when they're going to start to insult and attack. But all that is is more proof that you truly have the Holy Spirit inside of you and that your witness is actually showing out to a lost world. Praise God, right? That they're seeing your faith enough that they feel the need to insult or attack it. Suffering and trials for Christ only come when our faith shows. Satan is not worried about the the complacent, secret agent, Sunday-only Christian that, yeah, they're great at church, but the rest of the week you see nothing of their faith. Satan doesn't care about them. He's not worried about them because they're not a threat. He's not going to attack them. Guess who he's going to attack? Those who are being faithful to be a witness for Jesus Christ in the world. That's when you're going to experience the suffering. I have um, a pastor friend of mine who, when we first met, he was not a pastor. In fact, he wasn't even saved. He started coming to a church that we were serving at and attending and uh, just checking it out for his family. And he comes in, and him and his wife kind of just get radically saved in the first couple weeks that they're there. They hear the gospel, and they're just like, yes, we're in. And so they, they jump on board and just really get involved. And, and they felt impressed within a, within a month or two, I think, of getting saved that, that she should quit her very lucrative sales position at this company and stay home with their children. And so they made that sacrifice, and they cut their wages in half, and she came home. They felt that Lord was telling them to do that, so they did it. And within about a week of that happening, something went wrong with the sale at his company, and he ended up losing his job. And so now they have no job, either one of them. And then within about a week of that, they end up losing several rental properties that they had, that something went wrong with that, and that went sideways, and they lost that as well. All of this financial setback led to them almost losing their house in the process, And it would have been very easy in that moment for someone to be like, God, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, like I just just committed my life to you. I just put my faith in Jesus. Like, now things are supposed to be better, not worse, right? Like, it's not supposed to, like, turn like this. Like, why why am I even doing this if this is what I'm going to get out of it, right? That would be an easy thought pattern for someone. But he didn't think like that. I remember talking to him about all this, and he said, no, no, no. He said, before I got saved— my God was money. My God was things. I worshiped that. And Satan made sure that I had plenty of it to keep me distracted and to keep me away from needing Jesus. So now that I've turned away from him and I'm worshiping Jesus, why wouldn't he take it away? Why wouldn't he try to, to, to pull that out of my life? You see, it wasn't a punishment. It was a pruning. It was removing some idols from his life and his heart to check his faith and to grow him and to to refine what Jesus had put in him so that he could grow in his following of Jesus and eventually become pastor, serving the Lord full time. This is how God works. It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit worrisome at times. Like it's not something we all want to necessarily like sign up for. But we do want to be like Jesus. And the way we get there is through suffering like this.
This is how God uses the fiery trials in our lives, and it proves that we truly are His, and that we are, belong to Jesus because He's refining us into His image. So when suffering comes, don't be surprised, but rejoice that your faith is secure. That's the first purpose of suffering. There's a second thing we see here from Peter. Look at verse 15. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes an Old Testament verse here in verse 18. He says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Point number two, when suffering comes, grow in sanctification, not sinfulness. When suffering comes, and it will, that's an opportunity for us to grow in sanctification in the image of Christ, not in more sinfulness. He says here, he says, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. He actually lists off several other sins in there, right? He says, Peter, he's taking a moment here, he's like, he's making it very clear what kind of suffering he's actually talking about, right? Like, he's like, I'm not talking about suffering due to sin, right? Sometimes in our lives, we suffer because we sin, and we're just reaping the consequences of what we've done, right? He's like, I'm not talking about that kind of suffering, Right? That's, that's a different category. There's, there's no, there's no um, glory in that kind of suffering. Right? There's just pain and shame, and there's no redeeming value to suffering from sin. He says, don't, don't suffer like that. He says, no, no, suffer as a Christian. If you're going to suffer anyways, like, pick the right side. Suffer as a follower of Christ, because there's no shame in that, he says. Rather, when we suffer for Jesus, it actually glorifies God and who he is. There's no need to, to fear or to hide that type of suffering. There's no need to overcompensate or apologize in suffering for Jesus. It's glorious to the Father. It honors him. He says, rather glorify God in that name. What name? In the name of Christ. Right? In the name of being a Christian. Don't shy away from that. Like some people today are like all freaked out, like, I don't really like to use that term. I don't really like to use that label. Like, I'm a follower of Christ. Or I'm a, like, no, it's okay. Like, don't be ashamed of the name, right? Like, it's the name of our Savior. And God says, if that brings you some suffering, great. Glorify God in the suffering. You know, this delineation right here, I want to just take a moment here. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's important in our culture in this moment. This delineation right here between sinful suffering and righteous suffering is super important. And sometimes it can be very misleading and confusing because some Christians like to label all of their suffering as righteous suffering simply because they are a Christian. But Peter doesn't quite see it that way. 
Sometimes Christians today will talk about their trials and their suffering and they'll compare themselves, you know, to biblical stories like, like the example of David and Goliath, for example. Like, like, well, you know, in the Bible, like David, man, he went out and he fought Goliath and, and, and he had to suffer. He had to have faith in God, but he had to suffer and put himself out there to, to, to go into battle against Goliath. But when he did, God came through, right? God defeated his enemy and, and he won and God gave him the victory and, and all this. And, and so if I just have enough faith against this enemy of mine, if I just have enough faith against this suffering and this attack that I'm, then God will give me the victory over this thing. The problem with that thinking, the problem with that fallacy is this. David didn't win the battle because Goliath was his enemy. David won the battle because Goliath was God's enemy. If you read that passage closely, it says that Goliath was defying God and defying the the armies of the God of Israel. David didn't walk in there on his own faith to deal with some problem in his own life and just say, hey, God, I need your help here, thanks. David, in faith, he did have faith, but he had faith in God that God would defeat God's enemies and he would use David to do it. You know, sometimes... Too often today, I think, as Christians, some Christians, not all, some Christians are picking fights and they're engaging in battles that are their battles, not God's battles. And they want to try to claim some biblical mandate or victory and that God promises to do this, and God doesn't promise that. God doesn't promise to fight your battles. He promises to fight his battles. And if you're humble enough to step out and let him use you, he'll use you to win the battles that actually matter for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. We need to stop trying to put God's label on our battles that are just based off our own pride or our own idols of other things in the culture that we want to see happen, or we want this to be this way or that way, but it has nothing to do with the Bible or the gospel. Don't bring God into that. If you want to fight that battle, great, go for it, but don't bring God into that. Because you make him look bad when you lose, and you say that God was going to win that for you. And it destroys the witness of the power and the glory and the majesty of who our God really is. But when we put him, when we put his kingdom first, then we simply become servants like David, willing to step out in faith and be used by God to do wonderful, magnificent things for his name and for his glory. That's when people are changed. That's when the world will be changed by the gospel. When we're stepping into God's battles. We're suffering for his name and not our own. Peter goes on. He says, don't suffer for sin. Suffer for the right thing. Suffer for God. Suffer for Christ. He says, because the time for judgment is coming. Now, just be really clear on this word judgment here because I don't want this to be misleading. Judgment here doesn't mean condemnation. 
Like sometimes that's what judgment means in our culture. Right? Like to judge someone means to condemn them. That's not what this means. Judgment here means like a testing, like a, a discernment of what's real, what's not real, what's true, what's not true, what's going on here that's good, what's going on that's bad. It's, it's a, an evaluation of the situation. He says, the time for judgment or testing has come to the household of God. Not to the world, to the church, to Christians, to the beloved, as he called us earlier. Right? Like, the time for testing is, is with us. Why? To bring awareness, to bring accountability, to bring growth, to refine us and sanctify us so that we will be more like Christ. We as a church, we as Christians, we should constantly be testing and evaluating our own hearts and our own lives in order to see, am I becoming more and more like Christ? And we should be doing this for one another as well. But that judgment that he's talking about here, it's not condemnation. Romans 8.1 makes it very clear, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That, that's the heartbeat of the gospel. We were sinners. We were broken. We were in rebellion against God. All we deserved was condemnation. We deserved nothing more, nothing less than the full wrath and condemnation of God that would send us straight to hell. And there was nothing we could do to fix it. So God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live a perfect and sinless life on this earth, and then to go to the cross and die in our place for our sin, taking the condemnation that you and I deserved. He took it upon himself. And he settled it. And he went into the grave, and three days later, he rose back to life, not to judge us, not to condemn us, but to forgive us and to call us back and say, come, be part of the family, be the beloved, be the church. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be some suffering. I'm not candy-coating this for you. But you'll be part of the family of God. And I'll refine you and I'll make you more like me. And one day we will have a glorious reunion together. That's the offer of the gospel. So the judgment here, it's not test, I'm sorry, it is testing, it's discerning our hearts to show us how to better follow Christ. This is how we grow. This is discipleship. This is why we do small groups, right? Listen, if you're new to our church, we are really, really big on small groups here. Right, we love Sundays, we love to worship, this is great, I love preaching. But the real work, the real testing, the real changing of hearts happens when you're one-on-one -on -one or in a small group with other believers and you are walking together in the faith of Jesus Christ. So we've taken a little bit of a hiatus, I know this summer, taking a few breaks, some small group, but September, we're back at it, we're hitting it hard every week. And so if you are not in a small group yet, you need to get in a small group so that you can grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. Have somebody to walk through the suffering with you and help you grow from it. Be sanctified in it. He says, because, he goes on and says, but what about for those who do not obey the gospel? Those who do not believe in Jesus, those who reject Jesus. What happens for them? He says, what will be their outcome? And the rest is, it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't even answer it because the answer is so obvious from the rest of Scripture. They do get condemnation. 
They do get wrath. They do get an eternity in hell because they have rebelled against the God of the universe and did not accept his free gift of salvation. And so I don't know where you're at today, but I just want to ask real quick, like, what's going to be the outcome for your judgment? Is there going to be a chance to grow in the grace and in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ because you've believed in him and you've turned away from your sin? Or is judgment going to mean for you condemnation and wrath and eternity and hell? Today, if that's you, man, you can, you can come over. Right? Like we, we, it's a free, free option. Like you can just believe in Jesus and he'll bring you right. Like this is your opportunity. I'm kind of joking, but I don't want to make light of this. Like seriously, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ right here, right now, he will save you from your sin and you will be part of the beloved. You know, sometimes I think we can struggle to discern, like I was talking about earlier, to discern what suffering is because of sin and what suffering is because of sanctification. Like even in our own hearts, even in just our own lives. Um, I know our, our middle daughter, Karis, um, she, she's just very sensitive to spiritual things and just really has a strong interest to know God and to know his word. She's always asking questions. She's always, we're always having great conversations and but when she, when she first got saved, or back up, so a couple, a couple months ago, her, just as an example, her and Courtney were having this conversation about um, spiritual things or whatever, and she's like, God, she's like, Mom, you know, you, know, you know like the Trinity, you know, like God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, you know the Trinity, and Courtney's like, yeah, yeah. And uh, she was like, you know, you know, some people say that's all confusing. She's like, but it's not. I got it. <laughs> okay, great. You know, it's taken theologians thousands of years to debate that, but I'm glad you got it. I'm glad it's good for you. Um, but like, she just, she just, she's so, like, she just thinks on it and she, like, she, she, for in her little nine-year-old brain, she conceptualizes it and, and she's just putting her faith in the Lord and it's awesome. But early on when she first got saved, um, she, there was a time there after her salvation that she just was really doubting her salvation. Maybe some of you have experienced this at times where you're just like, I just don't, did I really mean it? Is it really true? Like, I just don't know. She was really struggling. And so we were having a conversation with her one night and, and uh, we were just asked like, so why? Like, why do you? Why do you doubt? Why do you think that you're not saved? And uh, she said, because I feel like I sin more now than I did before I got saved. And we were like, we assure you that is not the case, okay? <laughs> you were sinning just as much back then. Believe me, we were there, right? Like, her sin hadn't changed. What had changed was her awareness, and her awareness changed because now she had the Holy Spirit living inside of her, convicting her of sin that she didn't have conviction for before salvation. Right? Her suffering over sin wasn't a sign that she wasn't saved. It was a sign that she was saved. Suffering in our lives should be pressing us towards Christ, towards sanctification, not towards sin and back to a place of unbelief. It's an opportunity for us to press into Christ. That's how God uses suffering and trials in our lives. The question is, how will we respond to it? When suffering comes, grow in sanctification, not sinfulness. One more thing, look at verse 19. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator.
creator while doing good. So here's kind of the application here at the end that Peter gives us. When suffering comes, trust Jesus to carry you through. When suffering comes, trust Jesus to carry you through. Notice it says, let those who suffer according to God's will. This is a hard pill for people to swallow sometimes, but the suffering that you're experiencing in your life, you're experiencing it because of God's will. Like God chose that for you. He ordained that in your life. It didn't catch God off guard. He wasn't like, oh, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Right? Like, no. like God knew, like, this is on purpose. God uses this to sanctify you, and this is the method. This is the only way. If you want to continue to grow in Christ, this is the only way you're getting there. Is God using suffering in your life to make that happen. And so this is purposeful. It's part of God's will. But then notice what he says next. He says, and trust your souls. And trust their souls. In other words, trust God in the midst of the suffering. Trust God with everything. With your whole life. With your afterlife. With your soul. With, like, and trust the Lord. Because, two reasons, look what he says. He is the faithful creator. Those two words are so important. We can trust the Lord, number one, because he is faithful. He will bring you through the suffering. He is, his record stands perfect. He has never failed us or anyone else who's followed Christ. He always brings the suffering around for good. He is faithful in every step. He will bring you through. But he's not just faithful. He's the faithful creator. The God of the universe who created all things, he not only will he bring you through, but he can bring you through. He is the all-powerful, all-magnificent, all-in-control, sovereign God, even over your suffering. And if we believe that to be true of the character of God, that he is faithful and he is the creator, then no matter what we're walking through, we can know that Jesus will and can bring us through it. I was thinking about this in terms of our church planting journey. I've been reflecting a lot, reminiscing a lot over the last six, seven years of church planting since we're kind of getting ready to move into a new season for our church. And um, I remember when just several times throughout our journey where I saw God do this in our lives and we had to rely on Christ to carry us through that. When we first decided to come back to St. Louis to plant and started looking at what that was going to look like, there was several, in, a few, maybe several is a strong word, there were a few in the area that just were really not happy with that decision. And we're really kind of against that. And we're pressing back like, no, this isn't the right spot. And, you know, don't plant here and da-da-da-da. And just, just some opposition that was surprising to us. Because we just, we felt so strongly in our hearts like God said this was it. And I remember walking through some of that and just God just using that trial in our lives to like teach me patience. To refine in me to have more patience and grace with other people who maybe didn't see the same vision that God had given you at that moment. 
And then we got here and we started the planting process and then we started trying to build the core group and get people on board and people were joining, things were going well and for the first five or six months, man, things were cooking and things were going awesome and people were getting on board and like, this is gonna work. And then we just kind of like hit a wall. We just kind of got stuck at like 30 or 35 people and it was just kind of like, for like a year, a couple people would come but then a couple people would leave and it was just this up and down and back and forth and it was, I was struggling, the core group was struggling, like, is this gonna happen? God, where are you? Like, I don't see it. And there were so many days where I would, just, I would end up in my office in the basement of our rental house, just like literally on the ground, face to the tile, just like praying and crying out to like, God, you've got to do something. And God was using that trial. He was using that, that waiting to refine me and to, to get rid of some impurity of pride in my life, thinking that I could do this. I could muscle it. I could put enough effort in. I could put enough hours in to make this happen. And he was teaching me dependence on him. And then I think, I guess maybe I learned enough for a little bit. And he's like, okay, now we're good. And so then he started bringing some people and things started moving again. And, and we got to 50 and we were ready to launch and we set the launch date and things are blowing and going. And, and right after we set the launch date, we find out that my wife, Courtney, has cancer. And she's going to have to have surgery and then chemo and, um, and then radiation. And, and the, she was starting chemo. She had the surgery before, but she was starting chemo the day after our launch Sunday here at Green Park. And I'm like, <laughs> seriously? Like two years of getting to this point and now, like, Lord, you're going to do this now? Right? Like, like I've got other stuff to do. Right? There's other priorities here. We're, we're trying to launch a church for you, by the way. But again, God was refining. Right? He was teaching me about priorities and like this church isn't your main thing. Your wife and your kids, that's your main thing. That's your first priority. And preaching the word is priority. And some of these other things that you can't have time for right now, that's great. Give them to somebody else because that's not your job. Stick to the priorities. He was teaching me dependence. I guess I didn't learn that well enough the last time. And so he's teaching me more of that. Like there's just a constant refining that's going on. And then we get up and we get going and things are moving and things are going good. And, and then COVID. Like I, I, I'm like saying the word out loud anymore. I'm like just so sick of saying that word. But that comes and, and, and things just get crazy. And then we're having to deal with, you know, just members and, and that are frustrated and contentious and just questions over this and questions over that and things are turning sideways and just having to walk through that this last year and and then we had renovation delays with the building and and just we we're talking about with the elders like we just have decision fatigue right i'm just sick of making decisions at this point but even through all of that even through this last year and a half as hard as it's been and i know you've had all your saying you've all had struggles with it too it's not just us but through all of that God has been teaching us, he's been showing us his sovereignty. That he's, he's working it all out. Like, we don't have to have all the answers. We can just entrust our souls and our church and all of it to the God who sees it all. And in all of it, Jesus has just been continually teaching us about his faithfulness and his power to carry us through all of it. Every single time. 
when we were going through the cancer journey with Courtney, apologize, I don't know what's going on here. Thank you. Sometimes it just starts and it won't stop. Um, but we were going through this cancer journey, and we were talking with this other pastor who had, had cancer, and, and they were sharing, and, and they gave us this prayer that kind of became just kind of this recurring prayer in our hearts during that season that I think is so helpful when we're walking through suffering. And so maybe this can be helpful to you as well. I've shared it before, but we used to pray this. God, I believe that you can. I believe that you will. But even if you don't, I will worship you. I believe that you can fix this. I believe that you can do it. I, I, I believe that you will do it. We have faith, right? We don't want to discount faith. God, come through, help us. But in your sovereignty, even if you choose not to, I will still worship you because you are worthy in the middle of the suffering. You are worthy of my worship. The God who doesn't change. That is the heart of entrusting your soul to God in the middle of the suffering. I know some of you are probably going through different types of suffering in your lives right now. I would encourage you, like, press into this. And sometimes when you start praying this at first, you don't actually mean it yet, right? Like, you're saying the words, but the heart's not there yet. But the more you say it and the more you press in, the Holy Spirit starts to work that in your heart. And he takes that confession and he makes it true. And he changes you. Because it's in the middle of the suffering when God wants to shine the brightest in your life. Not once you finally get past it. Not when it's all good and, and there's, you know, the rain clouds are gone and the sun is out. No, he wants to be with you in the moment. But we have to entrust our souls to him to see that happen. And then Peter ends with this phrase. He says, entrust your souls to him while doing good. That's a common phrase. I don't know if you've noticed that in 1 Peter. He says that several different times. Doing good, doing good, doing good. So what does that mean? What's that really look like just practically for us? So I think there's three things that we see throughout the book of 1 Peter that fall in this category of doing good. So real, quick, real quickly, this will be the last thing. Number one, doing good means walking in faithful obedience to God. It means like right in the middle of the suffering, like right in the middle, not after but even in the suffering, am I willing to be obedient to Christ? Am I willing to walk through the suffering and still keep my eyes on him and obey my Savior? When the challenges are coming, when the attacks are coming, will I let sin win? Will I let my flesh come out? Or will I continue to stay faithful in obedience to Christ? That's doing good in the suffering. Number two, being a good witness to his grace and his power. Chris talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We've talked about it a little bit off and on throughout the series. That it's in, it's not, again, it's not after the suffering. It's in the middle of the suffering that we have this great opportunity to be a, a great witness for who Jesus is. That yes, it's bad, and yes, it's ugly, and yes, it's hard, but listen, I've got him with me. God has not left me, and he's going to bring me through. You'll see. Be a faithful witness in the suffering. That's doing good. Number three, Living for eternity, not this world. 
So oftentimes suffering, man, it can get our eyes off of the Lord and it gets them right here. Right? We just turn inward and we look right at ourselves and we get so consumed with us and our lives and our suffering that we lose the perspective of eternity. And it makes our suffering different. When we think that it's all about this right here, it just consumes us. But when we get our eyes on the Lord and we keep our eyes on eternity, the suffering is just a small little step in all of eternity that we have to get through before we see Jesus more clearly. It changes the way we suffer. Doing good in the midst. But the only way that we're going to do any of that is not muscling it. It's not figuring it out on your own. It's not working harder or going to church more or reading your Bible. It's, it's pressing in and letting Jesus be the one who carries you through. It's a heart issue. Depend on him. Rely on him. Let his power, his faithfulness be what makes the difference. When suffering comes, trust Jesus to carry you. I said at the beginning, suffering is my only path to a secure and sanctified faith. That sounds hard, that sounds scary, but it's true. And if you're here today and, and, and you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, you've got to start there. First, you've got to put your faith in who Jesus is. And then this process starts. And so if you haven't done that yet, man, I encourage you, man, believe in Jesus today. Give him your heart. Like, let him change your life. But if you have, we all need to be aware, we need to be ready for the suffering that comes when you follow a crucified Savior. As much as we'd like to avoid it, all the pain, all the suffering, we need it. I need it. You need it. This is how God confirms our salvation. It's how he grows us in sanctification to look more like Jesus. He's refining our faith. He's preparing us for the day that we're going to see him and be with him forever. So we need to trust him in the process. We need to worship him in the middle of the suffering. Let's do that right now. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. God, just again, thankful to be here, thankful to be in your presence. Lord, the way you come and you meet us here so faithfully every Sunday, you fill us up. God, we, we love that. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for saving us through Jesus and his sufferings. As much as we try to avoid it, as much as we, we don't want to suffer, Lord, we recognize that you use the suffering for good in our life. Lord, help us. Help us rejoice in what you are doing through our suffering and seize it as an opportunity to grow in our walk and become more like you. We trust you. We trust you to carry us all the way through it. So we fall at your feet today. We're all this in Christ's name.